Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Chabura. Um, I see we've got some new guests. We've got some of our existing members. Uh, whether you're listening live on our podcast or on our YouTube page, welcome from all over the world. Uh, if you're here for the first time, uh, I'm Fina Kahen, one of the co-founders of the Chabura. Uh, we are an online Beth Midrash dedicated to studying Mikra, Halakha, Machshaba, Talmud, and worldly wisdom in the classical Sephardi approach. We have over 300 members in over 20 countries, and our online learning platform allows our students to learn Torah anytime, anywhere. We're also a publishing house based here in London, dedicated to producing and translating many works of our hachamim to make Torah Sephardi as accessible as it should be. Please do check out the website, thehabura.com, to stay updated. And we've actually just added a new search engine on our website that lets users search through our database of classes. So do have a look at that. Now, usually we have Ohad in Miami introducing the shiurim. But tonight, I decided to take the mantle to do the intro, given that it's a topic that's very close to my heart. Uh, not many people know that I was actually born in Iran over 30 years ago. And moving to the UK at the age of three, I was raised in a predominantly Ashkenazic environment that generally espoused the notion that Iranian Jewry wasn't really so advanced or learned, even though we had such a long presence in our nation's history. After a little bit of research, I came to learn that much of that notion was sometimes missing important context and sometimes was just incorrect. And uh, I remember a specific example uh, was the writings of an Indian ruler in 1643 who had visited the Jews of Esfahan and noted that the Jews were studious in learning. They were philosophers. They were perfect in the seven wisdoms. They all, men, women, boys and girls, knew the entire Bible by heart. They are very learned, these Iranian Jews, with a proclivity to research. Their craft is reading and learning. So tonight, we have a very special guest who will explore the history of the Jews of Iran and provide a basic overview of some of the hachamim uh, in the more recent centuries, uh, 19th and 20th centuries. And this guest is Avishai Shraga, lives in Los Angeles, where he graduated Yeshiva University, Los Angeles High School in 98. He runs a finance company. He recently wrote the introduction for a fantastic new book published by Machen Magen Avot which includes the Teshubot of Hacham David Sasson Rabban, who was the Dayan of Hamadan. The book is the first of its kind to include halakhic writings from the Hachamim of Iran. So we're very grateful to have Avishai here from Los Angeles in the middle of his day. And um, I'm very excited to finally show off some of the glory of uh, the Persian nation. So Avi, thank you so much for being here. Bachavo, the stage is yours. Thank you very much, Sina. I just want to make sure before I start, you could see my screen, right? See your screen. We can see okay. you and we can hear you. Very good. Um, hello, everybody from Los Angeles. I hope you guys all had a wonderful and meaningful Chag. I know I did. Uh, it's truly an honor and a pleasure for me to be here. I am going to first give you a little bit of background about myself. I am then going to do a very, very brief history of the Jews of Iran. I'm probably going to cover, you know, 1,500 years in, uh, in just about 10 minutes. And then I'm going to profile some of the Chachamim, some of the rabbis that lived in Iran over the last few hundred years. Um, anyone who has any questions is welcome to reach out to me. Um, I, I got involved in this project almost by accident. Just like Sina said, I also grew up, I've been living in Los Angeles almost my entire life. And... I heard from a local rabbi uh, who runs this machon, this publishing house called Magenavot, that he had come um, across a manuscript from one of his congregants of his congregants' grandfather's writings. His, the grandfather, who is Chacham David Sasson Rabban, also known as Mola David Sasson Rabban. Mola is the term used for a rabbi in Iran. Um, was the Rav was the rabbi of the city of Hamadan. Hamadan is a major city in Iran. It remains a major city in Iran. Um, and he was the rabbi there and his writings came across and he decided to publish them. And I told him I wanted to be involved. Just like Sina said, I had also grown up and I have, and I live in a community where you're told as a Persian Jew that many of your minhagim are made up. 
and some and you didn't really have uh, Torah wisdom there. And so you sort of have to follow what's what you're taught from other people. So this always bothered me. And so I decided I, I did. I agreed to get involved and I wrote the introduction with the introduction is more like a very, I would say, advanced term paper you would write for college, perhaps like a, a research project. Um, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself, my personal family, and I learned a lot about the Jews of Iran. So I'm going to take you through that uh, right now. Just a couple disclaimers. I'm not a rabbi and I am not a historian. I hope I don't make any mistakes. Some people have read the book and have pointed out some minor things to me here and there. Anyone who wants to know anything else or wants any of the sources I use is more than welcome to reach out to me. I would really welcome anybody's feedback. Okay. Before we get into our first slide, I just want to give you guys some context. The Jewish community in Iran is the oldest Jewish community in the diaspora in the world. We're soon going to see that the community began about 2,600, 2,700 years ago. But it's unique in that it remains a Jewish community today. Today in Iran, you have anywhere between, I've heard different estimates from 10,000 to 25,000 Jews remaining. It's a functioning community. They have shochatim, they have mohalim, they have kosher restaurants, they have bateknesiot, they have mikvaot, they have a chief rabbi now. Uh, he, in fact, was in L.A. not too long ago, and I got to meet with him, Rabbi Garami. And that is unique because in the, in the rest of the Middle East, you don't have that. You don't have a Jewish community in Iraq. You don't have a Jewish community in Egypt. You don't have a Jewish community in Lebanon, in Yemen. These are all countries that had, in Syria, these are all countries that had massive Jewish communities. Um, today, in all those countries that I mentioned, perhaps you can gather one minyan together. Iran is unique. and um, it starts with this Gemara, this Gemara that you can see here is from Masechet Kiddushin. It also appears in Masechet Yevamot. The Gemara quotes a pasuk from the Navi in Sefer Melachim Bet. And the pasuk has as follows. says that the king of Assyria, the verse refers to him as Shalmanaser, but the Chachamim teach us that it's Sancherev Melech Ashur. Ashur, which is Assyria, was the dominant world power at the time. Sancherev was the king. He was the world's most powerful person at the time. Two days ago, for those of us who live outside of Eretz Israel, we read the Haftarah from Mishaya, which starts with a reference to Sancherev arriving at the city of Jerusalem on Erev Pesach, ready to destroy Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem and its, on all its inhabitants. Well, he fails there because Hashem makes a miracle. And all his uh, soldiers die that night. But before he did that, he was successful in exiling the ten tribes. This takes place approximately 130 years prior to the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash. The Pasuk says he takes all these inhabitants of the northern kingdom, of the ten tribes, and he takes them to the following places. Chalach, Chavor, Nahar Gozan, Ve'arei Madai. Now the Gemara tries to figure out where these locations are. I'm going to skip about a line. And you see that the Gemara says, Are Madai Zu Hamadan When the Pasuk, when the verse refers to Are Madai, the cities of Midia, this is Hamadan. The Amrila, some people say, Zu Nahavand that it's talking about Nahavand. Nahavand, just like Hamadan, is another city in Iran. It's very close to Hamadan. It exists until today, it's populated. Regardless of which opinion you go with, these Are Madai, these cities of Midia, is where many of the Jews that lived in the Northern Kingdom were exiled. They were expelled from the land of Israel and they were sent there. And the opinion is that that's Hamadan. Madai, Medea, of course, is an ancient, uh, an ancient country. It doesn't exist anymore today. We read it about a month and a little over a month ago in the Megillah multiple times. Madai Paras, Madai Paras. Back then they were two different nations. But this area of Hamadan, which is Northwest Iran back then, belonged to the nation of Medea. And this is 130 years before the destruction of the first temple. Already you have Jews that have been transferred and live in Iran. And from that day until today, we have a continuous Jewish presence. 130 years later, of course, the dominant world power transfers. It transfers now to Babylonia. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babel. 
he invades Judea, he destroys whatever Sancheriv could not destroy, he destroys the Beit HaMikdash, and he, ex he exiles everybody else. And when he exiles, I'm going to come back to that map in a minute, but when he exiles the rest of the Jews in the land of Israel, he sends them also to the Median Empire, to Madai, and further into Iraq, modern-day Iraq, in Syria. As the Babylonian Empire has now grown, he's conquered Assyria, he's grown the empire, and now we have Jews everywhere. Iran, modern-day Iran, modern-day Iraq. I should have mentioned a quick disclaimer. I will refer to Iran and Persia a little bit interchangeably today. The word Iran is only 100 years old. Uh, before, about 100 years ago, it was referred to exclusively as Persia. Um, so I apologize if I refer to it as ancient Iran. There was no ancient Iran. It was Persia. But back then, you had Jews living in the area that's today known as Iran, that today is known as Iraq, that's today known as Syria. That's approximately 2,500 years ago until today. There are some of the sources that we used in our introduction that have Jewish communities that trace their lineage back to the destruction of the first temple that still live in areas of Iraq and Iran. Seventy years later, at the end of the exile of Bavel, Galut Bavel, the dominant world power is now Persia. The king is Ahashverosh. We, we know that Ahashverosh, our Chachamim tell us, either married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter or granddaughter. Vashti, his first wife, was related to Nebuchadnezzar. He conquers the Babylonian Empire. And the Persian Empire is where the story of Purim takes place. We know that's approximately 70 years after the destruction of the first temple. And we know that at this point, there are Jews living throughout the Persian Empire. Because as the story of Purim tells us, there are edicts that go out to the entire Persian Empire, and the Jews live in fear. And we know Jews live, live everywhere at this point. And the Persian Empire is massive. So at this point, now you have Jews living everywhere. A quick map of, this is more modern day Iran. But just to give you a little bit of a, an idea of where everything is, Tehran is towards the north. Hamadan, you see it a little bit to the west. Pay attention to the city called Shush, which is directly to the south of Hamadan. We will come back to that later in our, um, in our presentation. Um, the story of Purim that we talked about takes place mainly in the capital. Uh, Shushan. Shushan has been um, wrongly identified with Hamadan, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more uh, later today. I'm going to fast forward again, just a little bit more. Um, after, the, after the second Beit HaMikdash is rebuilt, only a minority of the Jews that are now living in Galut go back to Eretz Israel. Um, some estimates we read are that only 40,000 Jews returned to, for the second Beit HaMikdash, and the majority of them are no longer living there. And they remain in Bavel, they remain in the Persian Empire, and they establish communities in those areas, as communities that last until today. The Jews that go back build the second Beit HaMikdash. The second Beit HaMikdash lasts for 420 years. The Romans destroy the second Beit HaMikdash or either the year 68 or 70, there's a dispute of the common era. And at this point, the center of Torah life, which is what I'm going to focus on today, the center of Torah life remains in the land of Israel. The Mishnah has not yet been redacted. Most of the Chachamim, the big... Well, we can hear you. I think you're muted. Oh, you can hear me, go. right? We can hear you now. Okay. Yep. The biggest Talmidei Chachamim uh, live in the land of Israel. The yeshi biggest yeshivot are in the land of Israel. And Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, all of these people, all of these big Rabbanim, they live after the destruction of the Second Temple mainly. Even though Rabbi Akiva was born before the destruction, he did most of his work after the destruction, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, even after him. And the biggest Chachamim continue to live in the land of Israel. It becomes difficult to live under Roman oppression. It becomes too difficult to maintain uh, Torah life, to maintain traditional life with all of the influences, whether the secular influences of the Roman uh, government or their oppressive influences. 
and Rabbi Yudah Nasi, who redacts and authors the Mishnah in the land of Israel, decides to send one of his students, a few of his students, back east, so to speak, to Bavel. Again, there's now a Jewish community in Bavel that's at least seven or 800 years old. Bavel slash Persia, the Babylonian Empire, spans much of what's modern day Iran. And that is where the center of Torah life moves around the third century, second, third centuries, and it moves back east. The land of Israel maintains a small yeshiva, particularly in Tiveria. Rabbi Yochanan writes the Jerusalem Talmud there. Many Talmudic Chachamim do remain the land of Israel, but the biggest Talmudic Chachamim, the leaders of the Torah world, are now living in the Babylonian Empire, further east. And uh, it's not known as necessarily the Babylonian Empire. It changes hands constantly at this point. There's Persian, they, they, they play ping pong for a while and the Ottomans come in a little bit later the, the, during the time of the Geonim. But whatever it is, these communities, whether it's Baghdad and these other communities in Iran are not, now become the center of Jewish life. And it is here where the Talmud is written. The Talmud being uh, probably the most important work having to do with halachic, with halacha, that's ever been written. Rashi says that clearly in Masechet Berachot, that, that the Gemara is the Ikar HaTorah. It is the most important part of the Torah. And the Gemara, which is read, you know, daily in many yeshivot around the world, also known as the Talmud, is written, it's redacted in what is today Iran and Iraq. I'm including here a quote now from the Chida. The Chida was one of the most prominent Sfardi Acharonim. He passed away about 220, 230 years ago. Um, he was of Moroccan descent, but was born in Jerusalem. He died in Italy, but he was later uh, transferred post-death. Actually, in 1960, his body was brought, his remains were brought to Jerusalem. He's buried in Jerusalem today. And he was one of the biggest Sephardic rabbis of the last few hundred years. And he has a bibliographic work called Shema Gedolim. And in that, in, that, in that book, he writes, he has the following quote. He says, He says that one of the wonders um, is that in the Persian cities were many, many generations of Emoraim. Emoraim were the authors of the Talmud. And that even Ravina and Rav Ashi, who were the final redactors of the Talmud, they redacted the Talmud into the form we have today, lived in Iran, lived in Paras. And he continues and he says that there was Yarche uh, Kala uh, there twice a year, that the biggest rabbis lived there and even the Goanim lived there. And he brings this quote uh, sort of as an introduction to something that's actually much more disparaging that I'm going to discuss a little bit at further length. But I brought this quote for now just to show you that the Talmud, that which we call the Talmud Bavli, could very well be called the Talmud Parsi. Uh, the Talmud was written mainly in what's modern-day Iran. Now, it's called the Talmud Bavli because the, the Babylonians were the main world power at the time. But the geographic area was Paras, was modern-day Iran, where most of it was written. Now, he brings this quote um, because he says that in his time, we're talking again 230 years ago, he had heard from messengers that had come back from Iran, and he was shocked to find out that in Iran at that time, the Jews were ignorant. He says it almost in those words. He says they barely know that when it comes to Shema Israel, they only know the first Pasuk. They don't know how to pray. They don't know anything. And it's a shock for him. And he, he can't understand it. And he gives his own answer as to why he feels that phenomena um, was taking place at the time. His answer is a Kabbalistic answer. I'm not really going to share it here. Um, but he, it has to do with Kabbalah. And he gives his answer having to do with uh, secrets, having to do with what happened in the previous generation. I uh, humbly, you know, spent a lot of time in my introduction, uh, not necessarily arguing with him, because who am I to argue with him? But 
trying to uh, bring other answers that were brought um, to explain how he could have said this. And one of the main sources we used was a book that was published not too long ago by Professor Daniel Tzadik. He was a former professor at the Yeshiva University, Hebrew University as well. He lives in Israel today. He wrote a wonderful book that was published not too long ago by um, Mossad HaRav Kook. It's in Hebrew. It's in difficult Hebrew. For those of you who don't have it and are interested, it's a book uh, which basically describes all of Persian rabbinic literature from thousands of years ago until today. And he spends a good portion of his book trying to explain how the Chida could have said we know there were plenty of Rabbanim that lived in Rome. We know that they knew a lot more than he says they knew. In fact, we have found multiple libraries in Iran that have the Chida's books, his own books, which are not necessarily easy books, with notes in the margins. So there were Persian rabbis living in Iran that knew his books. So I'm not going to really spend a lot of time discussing what he said, except to say that while it was exaggerated what he said, one thing we know is true. Iran in the last 200 or 300 years has not produced the same caliber of Talmidei Chachamim that were produced by its neighboring countries, particularly Syria, Iraq. These countries produced massive uh, you know, names that everybody knows, um, massive publications books that are used on a daily basis. That is not the case from Persia. That was not the case in Iran. And while there were Rabbanim, and while there were Chachamim, and while there was Torah, there wasn't Torah at the same caliber. We can all admit that. The question is why? And I've heard maybe 50 answers to it. I'm going to share a few of them with you later today. And before I do that, I'm going to profile some of the Chachamim that we were able to find. And as you learn about their lives of these rabbis that lived in Iran over the first few, the last few hundred years, you'll see perhaps why I included them is to perhaps bring some of the reasons why Iran did not produce the same caliber of Tamil Chachamim that these other countries produced. Um, before we get into the profiles, uh, I just want just to show you the level of Chochmah that was in Iran uh, during the time of the Gemara. The king of the Persian Empire, um, in the beginning of the Talmudic uh, period, was King Shapur. And I've, I remember once finding a very interesting Gemara. It's at the end of Masechet Baba Mitzia. Baba Mitzia. If you've ever seen it, if it's on, the, it's on the very last page. I invite anyone who's here to go look at it later. The Gemara there brings a quote from Rabbi Shimon, a certain halakha that he, the uh, chidush that he made. And the Gemara brings a quote from King Shapur praising Rabbi Shimon, saying what a beautiful chidush he made. And Rashi there says that King Shapur, who was a Gentile, was the king of Persia and was a Talmud Chacham. He was fully versed in Halakha and all the Mishnayot. And he was a Chavruta with Shemuel. Shemuel as we know, is in the Gemara, we see him often partnered up with Rav. Shmuel and Rav were partners. They were the first of the Emoraim. Rav and Ravin, Ravina and Rav Ashi, who we mentioned earlier, were the last pair of the Emoraim. Shmuel was a friend of Shapur. In fact, by accident, this past Thursday night, I was reading the Tikkun of Shvishel Pesach, which I, only, only, I always get through like 20 or 30 pages before I fall asleep. In your Machazor for Pesach, there is a Tikkun that you're supposed to do on the 7th of Pe- on the on the seventh night of Pesach. And so the Tikkun has a lot of Zohar, but, you know, the Gemara that it quotes is mostly from Masechet Sanhedrin. And right there, it's in Masechet Sanhedrin, there's a whole discussion between Shapur and Shmuel. And Shapur is a Goy. He is a Gentile. He's quoted in our Gemara multiple times. He's the king of Persia at the time. And he is so influential that Rashi brings his quote in the Chumash in Prashat Vayechi, the Pasuk Ben Porat Yosef Ben Porat Aleain. Rashi tries to find out the etymology of the word Porat. And he says that the word Porat is a Farsi word. And that's the Rashi I invite you to look at in Parashat Vayechi. Okay, we're now going to um, profile a few of the Chachamim that lived in Iran over the last few hundred years. 
there were, uh, in our book, we profiled about 12 or 13 of them, I believe. I am only going to be discussing five of them today, and I didn't pick them for any particular reason except just to show the diversity, not because one was greater than the other or anything like that. Um, the first one is perhaps the most well-known one is Mola Orsharga. Mola Orsharga, most of what we know about him are myths and legends. Uh, he's left almost no writings. The only things we know that he's left behind are two letters to the city of Mashhad. Mashhad is another major city in Iran that had a major, major Jewish community. In the 19th century, they suffered a very massive pogrom, uh, leading many of their inhabitants to live as Anusim, as hidden Jews. The only two documents we have left from him are um, these two letters he sent to Mashhad. Until recently, uh, an auction house in Jerusalem sold something, uh, an old sefer, an old European Ashkenazi sefer with his notes on the sides. Somebody bought it. We don't know who bought it. I've been looking to find out for a while now. Um, there's a lot of legends. I myself happen to be a descendant of his um, about him, but he was a big Mekubal. There's a big Yazdi community named after him today in Jerusalem, in Masha'arim. There's a big synagogue called the Yazdim, Tefer Yerushalayim, but it's known as the Yazdim Bet Knesset in Yerushalayim. And Chacham Yosef for almost 50 years gave his shiur there every Saturday night. And um, he was perhaps the most well-known of the Persian Chachamim, but we know very little about him, unfortunately, um, including where he came from. There are some opinions that he came from Europe. About four or five generations before, his, 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 uh, his ancestors came to Iran by way of Eastern Europe. Some people say otherwise. Um, but he's the first one I'm going to profile. The second one is Harav Yishmael HaKohen Hashem Yikom Damo. Harav Yishmael HaKohen was born in Yaz, the city that Mola Orsharga is buried in today. Um, his father was named Mola Humayun, was the Av Beidin of the city of Yaz, and his father died when Harav Ishmael was about 20 years old. So Harav Ishmael went to Iraq at that time, where he studied with the Benishchai. Most Persian Chachamim of that time, they wanted to reach a higher level of Torah study, had to go to Iraq. While there were some yeshivot in Iran, uh, there wasn't a very structured Talmud Torah system. Most of the Torah was taught at home or in the synagogue from the local community rabbi. There were some yeshivot, particularly in Hamadan, but the majority of higher level learning, if you wanted to become a big rabbi, a Talmudist, a Posek, you had to go to Iraq. And Harav Ishmael Akhoin did that. He goes to Iraq, but he doesn't stay very long. Um, he moves to Turkey, um, where Outside of the city of Izmir, he serves as a Chambashi, becomes the big rub of, the, of that area for 20 years. And his, one day, uh, his house burns down with, with all of its books and all the manuscripts and everything he has in there. And he sees it as a sign from heaven that he should never have, have left Eretz. Uh, he should have never gone to Turkey. I, I, I failed to mention that in between his stop in Iraq, he did stop in Tzfat. He moved to Tzfat in northern Israel for a little while where he served as a rabbi in Tzfat and then he moved to Turkey. In Turkey, he realized that he should have, he should have never left Tzfat and he goes back to Tzfat where he becomes the Sephardic chief rabbi of the city and the Avbeit Din. And he becomes a very influential person, uh, Rav, in Tzfat. In 1929, um, there are major riots that break out all over the land of Israel. They're known in Hebrew as Me'oraot Tarpat, if you've ever heard of them. Um, if you've ever been to Hebron, the city of Hebron, um, you will see a big sign outside of the Arab shuk that says this, uh, sh I, I'm getting it wrong for sure, but it says this shuk or this, uh, this market is built on, on land that was stolen from Jews in 1929. There were riots in Hebron, Yerushalayim, all over the land of Israel. Hundreds of Jews were killed, including Itzfat. And Harav Ishmael instructed all his community members to lock themselves up. Uh, the Shabbat Goy that was used, the, Arab, the local Arab that the community in Tzfat used as a Shabbat Goy, came to his door, tricked him into opening the door, and behind him a mob ran in and murdered him and his wife in 1929. The next Chacham that I'm going to profile is Harav Chaim. More, he was the leader of 
Tehran's Jewish community in the first half of the 20th century. Um, his father also died very, very when he was very young. Uh, he, where he, he went to Yazd to learn Torah. But soon after, he came back to, te, to Tehran, where he became the leader. And he also taught at the Allianz School, a famous school that was brought to Iran by the Europeans, um, by European Ashkenazi Jews. He lost his sight at the age of two. He was fully blind from the age of two till the end of his life. And he committed the majority of what, we, what, we, what a rabbi would use completely to memory. The entire Sidur and all of the year's prayers from all the Mahzurim, the entire Tanakh and the entire Zohar he knew by heart. And he used that to teach Tehran's Jews. And he even wrote three books, all three of which are still available today. Um, they're not in print, but they can easily be purchased at auction houses and things like that. He wrote three books. And I'm just going to read a quote to you that uh, I found not too long ago from a local, from a, I don't know who this is, but his name is Abraham, Abraham Jacob Brower, a famous geographer from Jerusalem who visited Tehran in the year 1935. He says the following, the Hebrew studies, i.e. religious lessons, are on a slightly higher level here in Tehran than in Kerman Shah, Hamadan, and Esfahan, thanks to an excellent teacher by the name of Mullah Chaim. Though blind from birth, this old man is the most outstanding Torah scholar of all of Iran's 60,000 Jews. His translations of the prayers and religious poems have been printed and are recited in the synagogues of Iran. Rabbi Chaim spoke to me in fluent Hebrew, and encountered difficulties only when I made the mistake of using newly created words such as irgun. This blind man teaches very bright children and can look proudly on his work relative to the small number of hours devoted to his subject in the curriculum. It's interesting to note that in our book, the book we published from, with the Shuvot of Chacham David Sasson Rabban, in one of his Shuvot, he was asked a certain year when to make, somebody sent him a question, when to make Birchat HaChama, the blessing we make on the sun every 28 years, the question came to Mullah David Sasson, when to make that bracha. And in his tshuva, in his answer, he quotes Chacham Chaim More. So they also had access to each other's books, obviously. They lived at the same time. And they had access to each other's books. And so it's, it's very interesting to know that, that the Rabbanim in Iran, Tehran and Hamadan, were hundreds of kilometers apart, yet they had access to each other's books, to, to, to each other's story. The next Rav that I'm going to profile is Rav Chacham, Rav Chacham Rachamim Melamed HaKohen. He was born in Shiraz, and already at the age of 11, he was a Gaon. He was giving Shiurim in public at the age of 11, and it earned him the nickname Mola Kuchik. Kuchik in Farsi means little or, or small. And that nickname stayed with him throughout his entire life. Everyone called him Mola Kuchik. Because from the age of 11, he was already giving shiurim. He ends up, he, he proceeds to get married in, in Shiraz. And unfortunately, him and his wife, while they don't have trouble having children, they, they, they have trouble having children that are able to survive. They have a, a daughter who dies right away, a second daughter who dies right away, doesn't live. They, neither of them live. And he, being a Talmud Chacham, convinces himself that there is a problem with his domain, with his what you would call reshut in Hebrew. And so the next daughter that's born, he says, I have to get rid of her immediately. He marries her off at a very young age. At the age of six, he marries her off. She ends up living in, to a very long life. He has two more, more, two more children after her that again die at very young ages. And he's a little bit despondent, and he has a dream that he needs to go to the grave of Ezra HaSofer in Iraq. And while he's at the grave of Ezra HaSofer, he gets a telegram that his wife has given birth to a boy. So he sends word back, please name him Ezra right away. Because he was at the grave of Ezra HaSofer. He sends word back to name him Ezra. That son ends up being a very big rabbi. He becomes a big rabbi in the land of Israel. He dies only about 30 years ago. He's known as Harav Ezra Melamed HaKohen. Many people know him. Many people might know him listening here today. Um, he even wins the Israel Prize for Rabbinic Literature later on. While he's in Iraq, Chacham Rachamim Melamed HaKohen then goes to the Ben Ishchai, Rav Yosef Chaim in Baghdad. He gets some advice from him. We don't know what, what, what the Ben Ishchai tells him. It's not recorded anywhere. Um, 
But this Chacham was perhaps the most well-published of any of the Chachamim we were able to profile. He has multiple books that are available in print today. Uh, he writes about the Midrashim. He writes about Parashat HaShavua. He has a Perush on Tehillim. These are writings mostly that he had written most of them in Iran. When he flees Iran, he loses everything. And he writes everything again when he comes to Israel. He sets up a yeshiva in Yerushalayim. He sets up a Bet Knesset in Yerushalayim. It's interesting to note that when he tried to leave Shiraz, his community forcibly held him back. They did not let him leave. And he had to flee one night late without his family. Um, his family ends up joining him a couple of years later. He becomes a big rabbi in Jerusalem. He's buried on Harazetim, on the Mount of Olives, but we don't know where because when the when the um, Jordanians had control over that part of Jerusalem, they destroyed much of many of the graves, including his. And so we don't know where he's buried. Mola Menachem Halevi is the last uh, Rav we're going to profile. We'll just wait for Avi to come back. Um, this is the only Rav you'll see I have two pictures of. And the reason is because after the first time I gave this introduction, someone reached out at uh, this presentation, someone reached out to me and said, I just want you to know that in my grandmother's old files, I found a picture of him from when he was young. And that's the picture you see on the left. I had only... In my first presentation, I only had the picture that I had found of him that's on the right, that you see him reading or writing a book. And this person who watched, who watched my presentation said, my grandmother remembers him. And she has a picture of him when he was young. And so I wanted to include it just to show you how people have been responding to me and sending me information that they found. He uh, was also a, 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 he was a, a child of a long line of rabbis, as was Mullah David Sasson in Hamadan. Hamadan was particularly a city that had particularly many Tamidei Chachamim. Um, he studied in the yeshiva. He takes a much more Zionist bent than Mullah David Sasson Rabban. He sees life in Iran as not feasible anymore for the Jews. He gets involved in the 1910s and the 1920s with many, many Zionist organizations and starts arranging Aliyah for many of the Jews of Hamidan. He himself leaves Iran in 1923. He makes Aliyah and he becomes involved, in fact, with the pre-state of Israel governmental authorities. And he spends time going around the world convincing other governments to try to support the Zionist enterprise. He goes to India where he meets with Gandhi and he unsuccessfully tries to convince him to support Zionism. Gandhi refuses to do so. On that trip, he gets sick and he comes back to Israel and he dies in 1940. And he's also buried in Har Hazetim. While in Iran, he spends a big portion of his life dealing with anti-missionary activity. And while I'm only mentioning it when it comes to Mullah Menachem Halevi, this is something we found with almost every single Persian rabbi, Mullah, Chacham, that we were able to find records of that they spent a tremendous amount of their time either preventing Jews from converting out of Judaism or bringing Jews back that had converted. And they had done this in many ways. Mullah Menachem Halevi, for example, would engage in public debates with Jews that had left Judaism. The influences uh, in Iran, obviously the Islamic influence was strong, but the Islamic influence was more by the way of the sword. They were, uh, you know, either convert or die. And that's something that Jews in other neighboring countries also had to deal with. And that's not always the most effective form of conversion from an enemy. Um, in Iran, they had something that other countries did not have. And that's the Baha'i movement was very active and very influential in Iran. And the Baha'i movement took many, many, many Jews away from Judaism, particularly in Hamadan. Uh, there's many Jewish families I know in Los Angeles today, Los Angeles having a massive Persian community 
that they all know Baha'is in their family, even till today. And um, the Baha'i method of uh, missionizing to Jews was not by the sword or by threats. It was with a cup of tea and with a fresh change of clothes, which unfortunately many of the Jews did not have because they were so poor. And it was effective. Um, And he spent a lot of his time fighting against that in Iran. And all the rabbis that we found spent a ton of time trying to prevent Jews from converting out of Judaism. I'm going to end with um, a discussion about one of the books that he publishes. Mola Menachem Levi, after he moves to Eretz Israel, publishes a book called Matzevet Mordechai Ve'er. Is a, uh, he, he subtitles it. He says, if you notice, first of all, he says, Asher Be'ir Shushan Hamedan Paras. He refers to Hamedan as Shushan. I'm going to come back to that. And he says, the customs that are um, appropriate to this area. He's talking, he wrote a book about the mausoleum, about the, the kever of Mordechai and Esther, which is in Hamadan today. He says, the customs that are, act, that are appropriate. And the stories that we've heard about this grave, grave site. Now, that drawing that you see to the right is a pretty good depiction of what the grave of Mordechai and Esther looks like today. The grave of Mordechai and Esther is in Hamadan till today. That's not very disputed. There is another uh, Mesorah, there's another tradition that their gravesite is somewhere in Eretz Israel, but that is not an accepted tradition, not by uh, secular archaeological authorities, nor by rabbinic authorities. It's pretty widely accepted that Hamadan is where they're buried. What's not widely accepted, not by rabbinic authorities, nor by secular uh, historians, is that Hamadan is Shushan, the city where Purim takes place. It's almost certain now, and we know without a shadow of a doubt, we've already found where Achashverosh's palace was, that the story of Purim takes place in the city of Shush, which you see is directly below the city of Hamadan. And that is where the story of Purim takes place. It's where the prophet Daniel is buried. And we have rabbinic sources going back to the time of the Tosafot who visited uh, Iran that attested that the story of Purim takes place there. Uh, we have archaeological digs that took place not long ago by French authorities where they have found Achashverosh's palace. And so we know exactly where that was, and that's in the city of Shush. Now, why does Harav Mola Menachem Halevi and even our author in our book, Chacham David Sasson Rabban, multiple times refers to his city where he lives, Hamadan, as being Shushan. Why? Probably because Mordechai and Esther were buried there. Um, but it's mistaken. Uh, it's a mistaken idea. Many Hamadani Jews I grew up, they all would always tell you around Purim, this is the Hamadani holiday, etc., etc., that this is where Shushan is. It's not. This is a fascinating book. If any of you speak Hebrew, it's not available in print, but you can get it online. Um, and he goes through all the different customs, what to do. He, he would tell you what they did in Iran on Purim, that many women would go there and they would uh, say to Helim and they'd cry all night and they'd go to sleep and they all had very vivid dreams on that night of Purim when they'd go to sleep there. Um, he ends the story with a, he ends his book with some historical anecdotes of the Jews of Hamadan. And he brings a story that takes place about the year 1890, 1895, that the central uh, Iranian government sends a new Shiite cleric to the Hamadan province. And he happens to be a pretty ruthless one who decides to blame all of their problems against the Jews. And um, he makes them wear special clothing and he puts special rules that they can only sit on the back of the mule facing backwards and they have to uh, build all their doorposts lower than the Muslim doorposts, so they have to bend over when they move into a door, etc., etc. And he sees that it's not uh, having enough of a negative effect on the Jewish community, and he decides that he's going to engage in a uh, in a process of converting as many of the Jews as he can to Islam. And he brings the local Jewish rabbi, the local Jewish mullah, to him, and he says, "You you have to." shave your beard and cut your side locks, cut your peyote, and you have 24 hours to convert. And this, he brings the story in great detail, and I'm just um, quickly giving you a synopsis of the story. 
And over the next 24 hours, he describes that many Jewish women in Hamadan were terrified. The pregnant women had miscarriages. Many old men died during those 24 hours uh, waiting for the 10 a.m. deadline. The next day, um, the rabbi had told him in person, I'm not going to convert. You could do whatever you want. Um, nevertheless, the next day at 10 a.m., this imam's, this, uh, this, this Muslim imam's, a henchman, his gangsters were already ready in the Jewish quarter, ready to, for the clock to strike 10 and to go wild and to hurt the Jews. <clears throat> and right before 10 o'clock, word comes from the imam that says, don't touch the Jews, leave them alone, and uh, we will make them wear a red patch instead, but we're not going to touch them. And they ask him later what happened, and he says that uh, a, an old man with a white beard and a glowing face came to see me right before 10 a.m., and he identified himself as Mordechai Tzadik from the story of Purim. And he told him, please have mercy on the Jews. And I couldn't say no. And he brings the story in great, great detail in his book. He, def- he identifies the rabbi that stood up to the imam. <coughs> Excuse me. Here, to the imam as Mola Yehuda Rabban. Mola Yehuda Rabban. In these two pictures, on the picture on the left, he's sitting all the way to the right with the big turban. In the picture on the right, he's sitting directly in the middle, the elderly man in the middle. He was the rabbi of Hamadan at that time. He, is, he was the father of the author of Arte Shuvot, Mola David Sasson Rabban. You could see Mola David Sasson Rabban in the left picture as the young man, as the young boy directly next to him. And in the picture on the right, he's sitting to his left, which is, uh, from your perspective, the right-hand side of Mullah Yehuda is Mullah David Sasson Rabban. And Mullah Menachem Halevi identifies him as such. And I'm going to just include some more pictures before I end. Um, these are now pictures of Mullah David Sasson Rabban, who is the author of the Teshuvot, which we published. Um, in the picture on the left, he's in the middle. In the picture of the middle, he, in the picture in the middle, he's sitting at the kever of Mordechai and Esther. He was the caretaker of their gravesite for many, many years. There's a synagogue in there, and that's his profile picture on the right. Um, I will end with just a brief theory, a few theories as to the main question which we posed earlier, which was why didn't Iran produce the same scale, the same level of Talmidei Chachamim that um, that the neighboring countries in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere produced, even Yemen. There are no known public works that came out of Iran over the last few hundred years, not many at least, uh, that relate to Torah. There's a lot of Persian poetry, Jewish poetry, Jewish songs. This book that we published is the first known book I know that has to do with halacha that came out of Iran. Why was Iran lacking this? So, I've, like I said, I've heard many answers. Dr. Tzadik, whose book I, uh, I mentioned earlier, he brings several his, of his own theories in the book, and we've brought some of them in, in our introduction. But I just want you to notice a few things from the rabbis that we profile. The first thing is that the, the vast majority of them Leave Israel, leave Iran already in the early 20th century. You saw that Chacham Chaim Moreh was the only one that ends up dying in Iran of the modern rabbis. I'm not counting Mullah or Sharga. Chacham Chaim Moreh is the only one that stays in Iran and dies in Iran. The rest of them, including the majority of the ones that we profiled in our book that I didn't bring in this presentation, all move to Israel at a very young age. And when they move to Israel, they do not move alone. They take what you would call their most hardcore, their most religious uh, congregants, their closest family members, their most studious students. They take them all with them and they establish new communities. Much of old Jerusalem prior to 1948 is settled by Bukharian and Persian Jews. And there's entire neighborhoods in in Jerusalem that are known as their neighborhoods. And these are the biggest leaders of this Persian community in Iran in the early 20th century leave. They leave. Um, 
The second reason you see, I mean, they, they, are, they, were also, they were also very poor and they had to deal with anti-Semitism, but that's no different than their neighbors. Their neighbors were also poor and had to deal with anti-Semitism. But they also had to deal constantly with the missionary activity of the Baha'is. And that left them less time for learning and teaching Torah. These are some of the theories that I feel are the most convincing. There's other theories, believe it or not, that historians and rabbis have brought that have to do with Shiite uh, Islam in Iran versus Sunni Islam in Iraq being as a main reason why in Iran you didn't have the big, as big Tamil Chachamim as you had in Iraq. I don't know. I invite you to read some of the sources. Maybe you can come up with your own theories. Be that as it may, um, our research shows that at least until the early 20th century, Iran had many, many Talmud Chachamim, many rabbis. Uh, that were no less knowledgeable, at least, than their neighbors. They weren't as well-published or as well-versed, perhaps, in, in, in what they wrote. But they knew Torah. They taught Torah, and they had communities that followed the letter of the law. Uh, certainly, from the mid-20th century until the revolution in 1979, there was a massive decrease uh, in terms of observance in Iran. Many Persians that left Iran 1979-1980 were not as religious as their grandfathers. Um, but after that, today, you have Persian Jews that are uh, at the highest levels of Torah Judaism uh, everywhere in the world. They run yeshivas, they run kolelim, they run the chabura, they do all kinds of other work, and they, um, and they are no less um, knowledgeable then their brothers and sisters from other denominations. Um, why they didn't publish as much over the last few hundred years? Well, we're working on rectifying that. Uh, this is one step, this book that we've published, we hope to publish more. We're looking for more manuscripts. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll meet again. I hope, um, I hope everyone learned something today and I welcome uh, your feedback. Thank you for your time. Thank you so, so much for that. That was fascinating and it's so depressing as well for me as a Persian Jew to not know 90% of what was taught today um, and uh, yeah really enlightened and you really gave me a lot of uh, food for thought and some beautiful insight into our beautiful tradition does anybody have any questions uh, if so please do unmute and go ahead and ask nope Oh, Jonathan, go ahead. Uh, that was really no less. <laughs> yeah, so that was really wonderful. I want to say a few things. One, um, I found out about the Habura last January, and I remember reaching out to Sina, and we bonded because we found out we were we both had uh, Persian. Well, you're you're Persian on both sides. I'm half Persian, but I always say there's no such thing as a half Persian. You're either in or you're out, um, and I say that because I'm Syrian, Moroccan, like I'm too many things and I don't speak Farsi and I'm very, like I didn't grow up in the Persian community. And for years now, I've tried to do research and I'm excited to, I'm so excited to be in the Shior to hear about these Chachamim. Um, my father's family is from Shiraz. And when I asked my dad about these things, his memory only goes back so much because like you said, the school's, like it wasn't at such a high caliber. And I know that there was um, like there was Alliance and then there was the Torah. Um, I forget what it was called, but the different school, um, more uh, quote unquote religious, if you want to say. Uh, I forget what the, the name of it was. But my question is about in terms of the different communities, Shiraz, Hamadan, Tehran, um, Specifically, Tehran. When people tell me that they're Tehrani, was that a is that an emergent community? Is that like a very recent community, or were there Jews in Tehran for a, like a very long time? Because I know Isfahan, Shiraz, Hamadan, Mashad; those are big communities for a long time. What's the deal with Tehran? There is a Jewish community that goes back several hundred years, but it's not a center of Torah life until the last couple hundred years, where you have big rabbis that we know about that lived in Tehran. Uh, there is certainly a Jewish community in Tehran for a few hundred years, at least, if not longer. Um, 
but in terms of Torah, in terms of Rabbanim and things like that, that's more recent. I should tell you that I recently found a book that I'm trying to acquire. I should have it soon about the rabbis of Shiraz specifically. It was written in Israel not too long ago from a Shirazi Jew. It's in Hebrew and Farsi. Um, I should have it soon. It should, it should shed a lot of light on Shiraz's Jews, which I don't know much about them either. Uh, there's a big Shirazi community here in Los Angeles where I live. Uh, they're very proud. In Los Angeles, uh, there is a lot of Sephardic Jews that live here. More than 50% of them are Persian. Uh, there's multiple Persian shuls. Uh, but it's the other, like you said, it's the, the Moroccans are the ones that are very loud about their minhagim over here and the Syrians, and they, they do all kinds of things. This past Saturday night, you're invited to multiple meimunas and things like that. Among, but the Persians are not as loud about their particular minhagim. They try to follow other people and things like that. So I don't know. Maybe we'll try to change that. Part of our book, actually, there's an appendix at the, at the end of the book where two Talmidei Chachamim in Yerushalayim specifically researched the minhagim of Iran and wrote about them. And it's fascinating because they, they found sources in the poskim, in the classical poskim, about a lot of the customs that took place in Iran. For example, in Iran, the Khatan would fast on his wedding day. That's something that modern, um, many Sephardic poskim nowadays frown upon. They're not big fans of that. In Iran, that was, that was something that was done. And there's many other examples, and they bring the sources for this. So there was, there were Min Hagim, the, the Chacham in our book, uh, already in the 19th century, and early, early 20th century, has letters going to Tehran and back, uh, to all over Iran and back. Uh, he's, everything is done by letters. These are his letters, and they're all in this book. Can I ask a question? If I could jump in. Please, sure. go ahead. Um, Two things. First, what was the name of that book that you mentioned by uh, the professor who used to teach at Yeshiva University? I'm going to try to find it and post it here for you. It's called Safrut Rabbanut, and his name is Dr. Sadiq, Dr. Daniel, Daniel Sadiq. Sadiq. If you want to ask your other question while I look for this. Um, yeah. yeah, so my other question, I don't, I don't know if you'll have a good answer for this. Um, but like when, when I was younger, I would see some people at our shul, I, I'm Persian, right? I live in New Jersey, but I'd see some people that would wear their tefillin, like Persian people that wear their tefillin lower on their forehead. And then like, I just thought it was just, they didn't know what they were doing or something like that. Then I asked my dad and he's like, yeah, in Iran, they also used to wear their tefillin a little bit shorter and they used to wear their talit sort of like a uh, scarf, like the way the, I, the I, uh, I don't want to. I just, I'll just tell you, I don't know. I think that's ignorance, but I don't, I, I can't tell you for sure. I don't think that uh-huh. was a custom that was uh, what you would call a, uh, a custom that had a valid source to it. I'm going to, I, can you see my screen? Yeah. Okay. That's the book. And you can, um, so to answer your question about the Talit, yes, I saw that too. Nowadays, you know, we they try to point it. that out. We try to point yeah. that out when we see it. No, it's not, it's not a valid way of wearing your tefillin or you're wearing your, your talit i guess there's some more as far as i know there's some more customs on talit you see some people wearing it like that but tefillin for sure not um this is uh this is what the book looks like you can get it through mossad harav cook which is one of the biggest publishers in the world mm-hmm. uh, they will ship to the u.s and if you get multiple people to purchase it with you um you can get a discount i will warn you as someone who reads Hebrew pretty fluently. The Hebrew in this book was very difficult for me. Uh, he writes it in, an, in a very academic Hebrew. Uh, like perhaps, you know, just the same way an English professor that he wrote, I mean, and I am fluent in English. If I read an English, uh, a, a, you know, some academic work by some massive professor at Harvard University, you know, I have to like slow down. And right. this is, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult book to read. But it's uh-huh. massive. It's like a thousand pages. And it is, it is, I used it extensively. And he really drops nothing. He, he has everything from A to Z. Um, so I, I invite you to, uh, to get yeah, it if you haven't. I, I have another question to ask. Do you uh, have, you, I don't know if you mentioned this, I had to drop out part of the call. But there's this uh, like manuscript that I've been trying to find an English translation for. It's called uh, Ketabe Anusi. It's by some guy, a, 
some Persian guy, he wrote it about basically chronicles of how during the Safavid era, the Jews in Iran were forced to convert to Islam. And there is some professor, her name is uh, Vera Maureen. She translated some of it to English, but I can't find like a, a full English translation to it. Have you heard of this? Do you know? There's like a Farsi translation. It's written in Judeo-Farsi, right? Then uh, the ma- majority of the manuscript, I think, is at JTS in New York. And then there is like a Farsi translation, but I've been trying to find an English translation. Wondering if you know anything about this? I don't know. I've heard I've heard the name, but I've never I've never done any research into it. I'm actually doing research into something similar that's Judeo-Persian right now. That's more recent. It has to, it's yeah. from the 17th century from the city of Kashan, but I I uh, I've never heard of that. I've never heard of an English translation of that. Yeah, I, I don't think there is. But yeah, I also am, in my house we have like a few like uh, uh, like Judeo-Persian books that are like halacha books, but uh, like you know, kind of conglomeration of like halachas and stuff like that. Uh, I will reach out to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah you got to get those over to me, Jonathan, as well. Yeah, my dad claims. My dad was telling me this. My dad claims that when he was younger, they, he would go to his grandparents' house who was like pretty learned. And he said their attic was filled with, you know, Jewish texts in Judeo-Persian and also in Hebrew. He says he has no idea what the hell happened to it. He's like, they, when they left Iran, they gave it to someone and, and it's gone. And all we I, can't are- tell you, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to in the last three and four months since we published this book that tell me the same thing, including yeah. my father, whose father and his grandfathers were all rabbis and they had volumes and volumes and volumes of writings. And it's all, and it's, all gone. and it's a shame. It's and that's why I, I, that's why this book is so unique because this person, who's just a regular guy, runs a business in Los Angeles and his writings. One day, he just showed it to a rabbi, and his rabbi said, "This is valuable." And there's more out there, and I'm trying to find more. I would like nothing more to publish more. I know, I know the Chabura is interested in publishing it, and we're looking at other things to publish. And yeah. there, there is there is a big appetite. I could tell you among not only Persians, but among Talmidei Chachamim that want to see what was in Iran at that time and want to see the level of Torah study and what the Minhagim were that were practiced, etc. Yeah, and I'll add to that. There's a, there's a book that I know we've spoken about, Avi, Chovot Yehuda by Rabbi Yehuda ben Elazar. It was written in 1686 in Judeo-Persian. And it's a book on Master Bereshit, Master Merkaba. And here, Daniel Sadiq, the professor that you mentioned earlier, described it as espousing a rationalist line. Um, so very much of that, uh, you know, lack of a better term, rationalist uh, approach yeah. that the Kabura is very much uh, giving light to. So that's a book I think we definitely need to get hold of to translate and to publish. And I did reach out to JTS just over two years ago to get access to uh, the many Iranian safarim that they have or the Judeo-Persian safarim that they have. Uh, and they they have said that we can go there and, and and get hold of those copies so we can get those published. So yeah. watch the space. There will be many more books um, from you know, Torah Tzafarad generally, but especially Judeo-Persian books translated and made available, please God, as we get them uh, in our own hands. Uh, we can then get our team of translation, translators and <laughs> typesetters to, to, to publish them. So um, yeah, many more to come. Uh, do we have time for one more question, Avi? I have plenty of time, yes. Yeah. Is there okay. anybody have one more question before we... Please, I'd, I'd like to ask a question. Please, go ahead. Um, just following up, uh, well, first of all, this was fascinating. Thank you very much, uh, Avi. And um, to follow up on one of the previous, the previous question about the tefillin and how it was worn, I was fascinated because I noticed in one of the earlier images that you showed in your presentation one of the rabbis was wearing his tefillin shalrosh, exactly as he described uh, down. Yes. So I, it made me wonder about this exact same thing. Well, I, I noticed that. I don't think it's too far low. It is low, but he was blind. Um, I don't know if that's why it's a little low. I really can't answer that. I mean, throughout the years, it was that some things get forgotten in Iran, certainly. Um, I I don't know. I don't have other pictures of Jews wearing tefillin in Iran that are from the early 20th century. That's a pretty early picture that we have. Um, for sure, among Persian Jews nowadays, there is a misconception that you can wear it lower. 
and we try to correct it every time we see it, but it's supposed to be above the hairline, the entire thing. But you really um, don't think there's a source to that? Like you think it was just, they didn't know what they're doing. Well, and if you read the Shema, right, it says to put it in between your eyes, right? So I, I wanted to theorize on that just because I, I did some extensive research in the Karaites communities. And again, this is just pure theory, pure theory. But obviously Iran was home to a lot of the uh, well-known Karaites, what they call Hachamim, the Karaite leaders. And there were Karaite sects that just completely interpreted Tefillin as being metaphorical and didn't put on Tefillin. But there were some who actually did put on Tefillin and they literally put it between the eyes. So I, this is pure theory. Do not take me at all as, as, as being the, the authority on this. But I would he- hesitate um given the karaite um uh, you know history of iran to do a custom that mimics the way karaites or some karaites would put on their tefillin which was between the eyes so again that's just my yeah, discomfort know. at the custom um yeah but that's just my theory Avi, it's possible it's possible that some of those customs seep through i don't know i really don't know enough about it i do know that that's something that i've seen among other people <laughs> and that once I was in Great Neck and I saw someone put their tefillin on with the case on. That, I think... That's that, just... You know, <laughs> I think it was a mistake. I don't think that was... It's just a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Um, I think we will end it there. Thank you all so much this for being here. This has been a here. lot of fun. Thank you. Thank guys. you. I really, really appreciate it. And if you're listening on the podcast or on YouTube, please do make sure to subscribe and review. Uh, next up, we've got on Wednesday, um, Eli Shaoubi continuing the Haktama to Chobot HaLebabot of Rabbi Nubahya Ibn Pakuda. Uh, and next week, I believe it is, we're starting uh, Rabbi Dweck's new series on Hacham David Nieto's writings, uh, one of the senior Safaradi rabbis of the United Kingdom, um, 200 years ago, I believe it was. So we're very much looking forward to that. Please do stay updated on thehabura.com. And again, Avi, we look forward to having you back for the next publication uh, that you'll be involved in, please, God. Uh, So thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to being here. And good night, goodbye, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Sina. All the best.